Cloud and Clear, the podcast by Sada for innovative business leaders and technology enthusiasts, where we explore how Google Cloud is transforming the industry and what that means to you. Now, here's your host, Tony Safoyan. Very excited today. Have my special guest with me. Woo. Our still relatively new, I can still say new. Oh, yeah, shiny Chief man. Technology Officer, Miles Ward in the building. He is I and I am him. Welcome, welcome. Not, not very slim, but that's okay. Hey, you know, <laughs> major progress. That's true. That's true. So we got so much to talk about. Um, really passionate about all the stuff you're working on. Oh, I appreciate that. But something that has influenced me immediately, and by the way, I've made it like required reading for the okay. whole team. I don't know <laughs> if you saw that. We're buying books for everybody. Um, there's this book called The Phoenix Project. Oh, uh, classic. By? Uh, my man, Gene Kim. Gene Kim. Ah, he had some... <laughs> quality collaborators do they work together on building this you know a way of converting the struggle that i see every company out there working their way through into a story that all of us can relate to right it's it's approachable and digestible it has all of the right uh challenges that the companies really have but doesn't make you feel like you're wading through some textbook yes it's fiction mm-hmm. so you know they can make it interesting that makes you want to keep reading it like it's not a school book but i've never seen like the typical struggles of every traditional enterprise articulated from our angle sort of the the it business angle Mm -hmm. um but it it was so like eye-opening for me to to see it from that perspective and then as i was reading it i was like oh my god (laughs) every client we have is going through this right now yeah i was i was super geeked to turn you on to it because it, it's so obvious to me how applicable it is to what we do and you know it's it's like one of those things where you've got a great song you want your buddy to hear and you're yeah. like i have you heard this song and he goes no you're like yes oh you're gonna love this song so much so uh, i knew that uh being able to get that set of ideas in front of you would be something you'd dig I love that. I love how it opens. He's like the CEO calls him in, the main character, and he's like, "So I've just fired the CIO and the number two guy. So you're in charge. You're it." And he tries to get out of it, but maybe I could. Uh, but uh. yeah, nope. And then the things he uncovers from his new vantage point relative to just sort of you know managing one part of technology, a couple of things that stood out like from the business standpoint, this clear line of business led initiative called the Phoenix Project, Mm -hmm. which was so critical for their ability to compete, you know, in the marketplace. It's this fictional company, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, auto parts, right? It could be anything, but so, you know, they're being out competed, out innovated in the marketplace. They've been working on this thing for two years. They can't quite get it out. And and I'm like, oh my God, every every company has these initiatives, more than one. And the angle by which like it, it makes it so clear how technology and you know dev teams and ops and marketing, et cetera, they're they're either enablers or they're a hindrance to major line of business initiatives, you know, mm-hmm. every day. Well, the thing that the book captured for me, you know, the real crystalline difference was the contrast between the chaos and terror 
and mayhem in this IT department and how many things were out of their control, how many things were beyond their ability to manage. And, and then the, the calm, experienced, patient manufacturing floor operator owner guy, right? right. Who's just, just cool as a cucumber. All of this is something that's under control. We've been doing this for a long time. And you go into businesses that are working on technology and you'll meet, you know, their IT folks and their, you know, people that are working in operations. You go, you know, how long have you been at this? Oh, 20 years, 15 years, 17 years, right. 30 years. Is it under control? No, it's terror. It's madness. <laughs> it's mayhem, right? And, and so, you know, I, I think there's just this um, huge hunger from people that have watched the technology industry that we all enjoy and are a part of and are challenged by as it, you know, layer on top of layer on top of new layer on top of whole new stack stack on, on top of all these extra building blocks that uh, that we all need to try and find some pathway to cool and confident and Predictable. this is organized and going to make some sense and I can I can make a bet on it and the bet's going to pay off and I'm just not going to get hung out to dry. Yeah. What was interesting is just sort of the way they categorized work and had systems to track work, but nobody was using the systems. <laughs> very, very typical. Yeah, um, yeah. And so this concept of how technical debt can sure. get in the way of this need to enable transformation, this need for entire businesses within industries for themselves to transform, mm -hmm. that was eye-opening as well. And, you know, you've seen it. Um, very intimately in all of the engagements between your, you know, between your time at AWS and your time at Google Cloud. Sure. So yeah. is it, so, so again, for me, it's like, you know, I don't have that level of, you know, on field experience from, from the CEO standpoint. And we're, we're starting to see that now as people are talking about wanting to go to cloud and they talk about cloud, but what they're really talking about is, ideally a long-term solution to this predicament. Right, right. I, there's, uh, I forget which, uh, which article that I was reading. Oh, I know where it's from. It's from the Bandcamp guys who say their book is uh, Work Doesn't Have to Be Crazy. Uh, and, you know, the opening section is basically, you know, th there's a lot of different approaches for, prioritizing and streamlining your work and making sure that you're efficient. I'll give you the best one. Do less, have <laughs> less to do, like don't do as many things. And you look at the, uh, there's a, a great gif that was going around a couple days ago. That's, uh, you know, it says like, this is what modern web development looks like. And it's a guy on a whitewater river raft setup, but it's, nine river rafts stacked on top of <laughs> each other <laughs> and he's like trying to figure out how to balance on top of this thing and it's clear like at any minute the ropes are going to go and he's just going to make out with a boulder and then that's you know that's where most businesses are they are responsible for such a huge variety of technologies you know the the notion of a full stack developer today to be able to go from rust to rust right one being spinning around on platters the other being a language you can use that just got you know like so like the delta there is so massive that awesome now you're at you know six people who have to coordinate and communicate about the vagaries of the details between their different layers 
all of which have their own challenges and their own problems. Like, boy, it's just too big. So I, I think a lot of people look at that, you know, I saw it first in the security models on AWS where it's like, this part is our job to secure. And this part up here, that's your job to secure. And all I ever saw any customer go, wait a minute, I don't have to do any of that stuff below there. You're like, yep, yeah, you don't have to do any of that stuff. Holy moly, that's like a whole set of work that, you know, like that, that takes a huge number of hours right now. It's totally unpredictable. It's complex. It exposes us to all this risk. So I think cloud is this big offer to, uh, to have to do less to get done yeah. what you got to do. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's a bunch of other ways to try and go faster, but having less to do sounds like a pretty good start. What I like about our conversations with, with clients, it's, it's really this sort of fork in the road, red pill, blue pill moment, mm. right? It is a, it forces the conversation around business priorities. Mm. It challenges them to undertake transformation mm. and it's calling them. It's not something they can ignore, you know, for much longer. And at least they're at a point now versus maybe a decade ago where they, like, they all know they have to do it. Mm. But what is it? <laughs> <laughs> how, 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 what's the best process for getting started? Because I think that's where um, decision makers get hung mm-hmm. up because they see this as this big risky thing. You know, are they are they prepared to put their careers on the line uh, as CIOs, CEOs, etc.? But but also below that, people executing. How do how do they get started? And what what's the best support and engagement models you've seen where? Um, the, the model can be proven in a lower risk contained fashion and, and maybe hopefully create a foundation for everything else they need to do. But, you know, they need to prove something up relatively quickly first to sure. gain the confidence in, in the approach and in cloud and, and their partner and everything else. Yeah. there. So, you know, I'll say a couple things first, you know, transformation as a label, and as a concept for the way businesses work. I mean, your, your CEO, I'll give an example of another CEO. I worked uh, for a long t- time together with the folks at WPP, which is the world's largest media conglomerate. Uh, what does WPP stand for? It stands for Wire and Paper Products. It's a company in the UK that made mostly shopping carts and electric tea kettles. <laughs> Uh, and they had a, a you know a young um, economist and, and analyst who made a proposal as a part of his thesis that there was a big opportunity for consolidation and improvements in efficiency in the marketing ecosystem, and he thought it would make sense to start buying marketing companies. This is not a normal you know it's not a faster shopping cart or a better electric tea kettle. It's a giant leap of faith for a business doing very different market uh and now that business is gigantic and super super successful uh you know that that analyst martin sorrell was knighted right so i i don't think if i go to most ceos or or uh, or even technology leaders that any of them you know particularly have a hard filter that says you know i don't want some new innovative idea i don't want to you know make my uh, you know, my taxi company into a car company, my car company into a delivery company, my delivery company into a food company, right? Like, I, I think all of us are, are you know, uh, recognize the, 
the capabilities of platforms and the urge to be able to be open-minded as to the possibilities in the space, you're, it's back to the end of the question you asked, like, okay, but awesome, how do I do that? Right? How do I get to a place where innovation uh, is backed by capability, that we're actually able to take those ideas and convert them into something that works? And the problem is, for almost all of the opportunities that we're talking about, the time frames in which the opportunity is is obvious and clear and there's a there's a real market need that time window is shrinking yes. every year it gets Absolutely. smaller and smaller and smaller you talk to the fashion people and they're talking about what is the clothing item of the week at this point right real time fashion means you're producing new dot, new uh, new articles almost daily at this point and so if you have this conflict between big opportunities exist there's nobody that looks around at the world and says it's not changing faster than it ever has before. That volatility is an opportunity for everybody. But if I can't take actions quickly enough to be able to capture that opportunity, it's someone else is the one that grabs it. So, yes. so uh, you know, what I heard all the time is, uh, you know, and that I like is that speed is beating size every yes. time, yes. over and over again, that the quickest to market, the quickest to react, the quickest to anticipate, the folks who have the clearest concept of where to take that next action are the ones that'll be competitive in the market. The big don't eat the small, the fast eat the slow. That's right. And um, it's, it's easier than ever today to enter a new business, to sure. start a new business, sure. to launch a product, to launch a service with or without funding, by the way. It's sort of like this very healthy set of, you know, seed, private equity, VC, there's just so much money on the sidelines. Anybody with a great idea can essentially raise money today. But That's right. But I, I know because, you know, my wife is bootstrapping a new fashion line. Like, it's not that hard. Like, relative to 20 years ago, oh, 10 yeah. years ago, oh, like, yeah. it's just, or anything. Like, you, you can manufacture a new thing, like, and enter the, you know, the router market. Right. Like anything. <laughs> well, and it, that goes back to the, you know, what I was saying before, right? It's, it has, it is easier because there is now less to do, right? Yes. Like I want, I want legal documentation. Awesome. There's open source frameworks for all that. Here's all the docs that you're likely going to need. I, you know, I need, I need my website to work. Awesome. Here's totally managed services that handle that. I, you know, I'm going to need business cards. Awesome. I just sort of, you know, click this button and they show up like, I, I want to have a new logo. Awesome, Fiverr. You get one and back and from 20 different people in six minutes, right? Like the reduction in the, you know, undifferentiated heavy lifting, the routine from these kinds of experimentative processes means that you get to the path of value faster. So the incumbents are no longer impenetrable. Totally. They're moat. There's no moat. <laughs> I mean, maybe there is one, but it's not very, um, the alligators, there's, there's no, there's no alligators in the moat anymore. Sure. And so, you know, the, the fortune 500, the fortune 2000, however you define it, they're not, um, immune to, mm -hmm. to the competitive elements that exist today, not only within each other, mm -hmm. but from the next, you call it the next Uber, the next mm -hmm. Shopify, whatever. Right. Yep. So. But a lot of our clients are in that category of, of established, you know, industry leaders. So how do we help them not be a statistic? There's, there's three things. First, uh, cool idea 
um, uh, from uh, from a, a it's kind of a history slash future book um, that talks about uh, the advantages of backwardness, right? So the the kind of canonical example here is uh, telecommunications in mainland China, where you go uh, if we want to run twisted pair copper networking to every person alive in China over the physical distances involved, we likely run the Earth's crust out of copper. Oh, oh, well, okay. Okay, that's a problem. And, uh, you know, in order to be able to kind of take advantage, you're going to have to figure out some other way around that problem. China's backwards. Nobody has telephones. Oh, man, this isn't working. All of a sudden, they figure out cellular telecommunications, and whoop, now everybody can have one of those. They leapfrog forward across a whole industry of trillions of dollars of physical investment on the ground in the rest of the populated world that's now kind of superfluous, right? Like, there just aren't that many people that have the rotary phone on their desk anymore. That baby's gone. I don't need 50 volts transmitted over it to pull the ringer button. That's all digital. So I think a lot of businesses that missed the boat on infrastructure as a service didn't say, you know, dive in with AWS or with VMware even, right? Like I see a lot of places that are bare metal and appliances and, you know, they've been able to sort of eke the last legs out of those technologies. Awesome. Go straight to containers. Leap over that whole learning curve, that whole set of technologies. You get to move up two or three ladder steps in one go and not feel like you're uh, missing too much because I don't know anybody that's on uh, infrastructure as a service now that's not going, well, okay, I'm, you know, I'm going to start working on this container thing too, right? Like right. everybody's going the same direction. You're trying to figure out how to let somebody else do as much of the work as you can. So that, that's one bit. Uh, another bit that's important is to not lose track of the positive differentiation that you do actually have, which is in most cases a big stable of existing customers. That's right. right? Like every startup that I talk to, it's like issues zero through 10 are, okay, how do I get enough customers? Right? right? Like you already have them right. and potentially like along with that, a brand and a market presence and shelf space yeah. and all of the rest of these strategic advantages. Uh, and you know, bluntly, because the technology gets easier every day, if the only gap between you and the other competitors is the tech stuff, like, okay, fix the tech stuff, <laughs> right? Like, it's just not that bad. Third bit um, that's super important is, uh, is context. So uh, a whole bunch of the companies that are getting started and are, are trying to disrupt these individual areas, they don't have nearly as much data about what has happened in the sequence of their users and customers. They don't know what the, you know, the cycles year over year and period over period are for the movement of that business, and they can get caught unaware by those transitions. Your better information means that you're going to build better models, you'll make better predictions, you'll be able to take smarter actions if you can put that data into gear. And there's plenty of places that you know, just left their data in yep. neutral, yep. <laughs> which is not so awesome uh, and presents a lot of opportunity. But that's that's a clear place where they have some big advantages. So brass tacks, yeah. um, I'm in some industry manufacturing, let's say, and I have 10,000 employees and have, you know, things that I make and build and um, I'm not growing as fast mm. and I need to 
make it easier for uh, my teams to develop and release new products mm -hmm. to market and need to understand the buying habits of my uh, direct customers and also what my distributors need to um, to buy more from me. Mm -hmm. And I have a bunch of systems. I have some mainframe stuff. I have some bare metal. I've virtualized some things. I have a pretty good in-house dev team, you know, decent ops. Like, wh where do I get started? Sure. There's there's kind of three basic entry points um uh you know in terms of outputs like what are the kinds of changes that businesses make to be able to to capitalize on these opportunities an easy example like take the folks i think it's lockheed although it, it may be one of the other aerospace manufacturers who built a totally specialized single customer uh, nasa was the only folks that were going to buy it extraordinarily low uh, friction bearing that was used on a couple of different satellites, right? No other market for this thing. Whole pile of R&D gets put into it. Not really sure what you want to do. Has anybody seen a fidget spinner, right? Which are this bearing. Yeah. And it's the only reason those things are fun. Uh, being able to look at adjacent markets, alternative markets, doing marketing research, right? Where where are the buyers for the product that you have a differentiated ability to build? Um, that, that market research, I think, is very, very powerful. There are a bunch of third-party services that can do it, but in a lot of cases, businesses in their product management and their marketing departments, they don't have enough access to just the basic information that's available now across so many different social and online channels. Being able to pull all that data together with, you know, likely into something like BigQuery or uh, you know, even you know, combining it into uh, online web interfaces as a big way to get a better handle on what's actually happening, like to be able to be connected to those market opportunities. In, in delivery of that kind of stuff, uh, efficiency in production is another whole huge opportunity. A bunch of that's around uh, you know, improved maintenance on, in, in industrial features and better, better analysis of the life cycle of componentry. So, you know, there are really simple brand new tools, a thing from Google Cloud called AutoML Tables that lets you say like, you already have a spreadsheet where you keep all the stuff about how long it's been since you updated this part's oil change or that part's refinishing or whatever it is. Maybe just a tip, cram all that table data into an ML model for tables and see if you get a better prediction than your little R squared line, right? Like just take it for a spin. Um, there's a, a recent result uh, in a, a Kaggle competition. That's an online group that does uh, machine learning model accuracy competitions. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, it, they show kind of a top 10 list and number two in the list isn't a person. It's just AutoML, yes. right? You're like, hold on a minute. So there's, you know, there's this rather incredible chunk of magic that Google has crammed out there to uh, that and they're letting everybody have access to it. I don't know. It's like it's like they've handed over superpowers or something. Yep. So third, third democratizing th those things, by the way, is so important. Huge and so necessary. And like, okay, it's in a table, right? You you get to the data that you've been using. You've crammed it into a spreadsheet. You do this little prediction. You show that to your boss. He says, "Well, you know, okay, I guess we buy more of these. That's what that says. I guess that's what we do." But it's in a spreadsheet. 
which is a Google Doc. Like I can share that to everybody else on the team. They can all look at how I did it and go, oh, well, that doesn't seem all that hard. Let me just change the couple of labels at the top and put my data in there and see if it works. Oh, wow, it does work, right? Like this is the kind of stuff where you don't do two week training classes or, or you know, you don't need like a, you know, giant long form certification for this yeah. stuff, right? It's, it is in fact easy enough to use to just cut people loose with it and see what they do. It's almost viral. Yeah. yeah. And that, uh, you know, especially in a business where, you know, if you, if you're managing in any kind of reasonable way, what you're indexing on is people's ability to, drive performance to drive change as a result of that and uh you know anything that's that easy to adopt is uh you know is worth its weight in in something better than gold so when i was i was going through the list the third third bit um you know that i think is an important place to start is thinking through all of the different interfaces that you have to customers today we were talking about the market first and then maybe you know how production or how, how you can measure, but your interface to customers, if you look at, if there's anything you can pull out of cloud technology, every one of the technology providers uh, in public cloud have used those tools to improve the accuracy and the fidelity of their relationship with customers mm -hmm. and to make it so that that's something that's on the one side delightful for customers to use. Nobody likes it when the thing has a spinny wheel in yep. front of it. Everybody's frustrated when you get a 404 this morning. You know, there's all sorts of problems associated with the downsides of a bad user interface or bad, um, bad automation at that tier. But the upside, the other direction, being able to observe your users in practice. What are they actually using your product for? I, um, at my startup, uh, I was sure that I had built a piece of software that people liked. They, they bought it. They, they paid us 20,000 bucks a month for this website. I was like, woo, we're making money. Uh, and then we're looking at the logs on the website and no one actually uses it. I think there's almost no logins. I'm like, why is anybody paying for this product? And my tech support, quote unquote, yeah. phones are ringing off the hook. I'm like, I would assume that means that they're trying to use it and having trouble or something. I talked to all the tech support people. No, no, no. They're just having conversations about what social media is. Oh, I'm running a consultancy that has an extraordinarily unusual payment model. Fair enough, right? So, you know, if you right. don't really see what's happening in your product, in, and, you know, that can be, you know, if you're a manufacturer of physical goods, this part of your product is all the way out at how it gets sold or how it gets marketed or how your customers ask questions about it. If you're, a, you know, digital services is way into the individual buttons that people click. But that, that fidelity of user information um, I think is going to be a big difference between successful and unsuccessful companies going forward. So let's, I, I, I'm a huge advocate. I believe in excelling in all the experiences. Most passionate, of course, about customer experiences. Sure. And a lot of that is sort of apps, mm -hmm. um, customers, consumers, especially millennials, but really everyone. Mm -hmm. They want to be able to interface with whoever they're getting services or products from through some sort of an app or yep. a beautiful website or whatever. And so, you know, assuming that, and we'll talk about talent in a minute, but you're able to build these things and you want to go to, go to market with them. And one of the things that the Phoenix Project um, surfaced was the difficulty of that in a traditional IT ops model. Mm. So even if you have these great ideas and you have wonderful marketing and 
go to market, you have a great customer base, and you want to release your version of Phoenix. Mm -hmm. What can cloud do internally within these organizations, IT organizations, to to make uh, to make that process smooth, predictable, error-free, um, make releases faster? Like, what's what are the, what's the internal engineering that needs to take place for that to to be enabled? So one of one of the core things, right? Like nobody wants egg on their face. Everybody hates it when the this most recent change that you've made brings the system down or blows a bunch of error messages for customers or exposes, you know, like, you know, the job of IT at, you know, at its most fundamental when you really get in and talk to the CIO, they're about risk mitigation. Right? They're about prevention of leak and breakdown and problems and error. And that, um, that viewpoint is valid. And it's important that the technologies that we build um, you know, hew to preserving value as a first principle, not just, you know, I, I always get a little cringy when I hear move fast and break things, right? So <laughs> the flip side of that is if you talk to those folks about, you know, what are the best practices? How do they avoid risk? What is the method that you use to do that? It's about explicit, specific mitigations. This is a risk I'm concerned about. I need a mitigation for that risk. You know, take the easiest one, like my software is running on one computer. I'm going to need two of them. That's going to be better, right? And there's going to be a thing in front of them that balances traffic between the two. Sheesh, I should have two of those too, right? Getting to high availability is maybe a, an obvious place where these practices bear out, but they have the same uh, concepts bear fruit in, you know, A-B testing and designs or any of the other kinds of places where you have that kind of optionality. For most businesses, building things physically and building them manually and building them in a way that uh, it's impossible for them to layer on top of prior implementations, every one of those steps has to be done by hand and so they take months. And so in that case, it's so expensive to build not just A, but A and B, so you can measure between the two of them. You have to really be certain that this is a good experiment to take on. So right. then you do all this analysis to make sure you're not wasting a bunch of money. Oh, Lordy, the analysis costs almost as much as just yeah. building it in the first place. Two years later. Both of those things are too expensive and too time-consuming. Really forget it, you haven't shipped anything, right? right? So uh, if instead... Uh, you know, and this is this is the CIO or my job, the CTO, however you want to think about it, is focused just on reducing the cycle time of each of those steps, right? How do I make it cheaper to produce A and B? How do I make sure that a bunch of this stuff happens by default? How do I make it so that when we build a piece, I can reuse that piece in a way that's reliable so that I can compose solutions instead of having to craft them every time? Uh, and the, uh, you know, if you want to see the clearest examples of that, it's pretty easy to look at the products in cloud and say, wow, they are really structured in this way, yeah. right? If you go into Google Cloud and you ask a brand new product manager today, how do you build your next Google Cloud product? They, they're not buying Rust. They're not, it turns out they don't have to kick shovels in a data center any place. None of them install a compiler. Yeah. Turns out that there's no networking configs. They don't even install virtual machines, none of that stuff. They stand on top of GKE, and here's the primitives that I use to orchestrate the deployment of my software. They can inherit all of the operational experience, 
all of the utilization management from every other Google Cloud project, it's entirely composable to them, and they just build the part that's unique that they need. So if you can prioritize in the work that you do, the effort constantly to reduce the repetitive and the, the manual and the, the just you know, unstructured in what you do, that necessarily reduces that cycle time. And that's how you get into a really innovative Also, path. that's where mistakes happen. Sure. Like manual, repetitive. Oh, yeah. That's no, I mean, like, human error. The, most recent, the most recent outage on the Google Cloud side, right? Nobody's immune to this stuff. Everybody has downtime. You look right in the middle of it. It's a misconfigured change yeah. in one of the networking steps. And you've got all sorts of protections in place against it, but it's three different misconfigurations over some chunk of time having an unexpected interaction, that, that kind of, uh, you know, when you look at those RCAs of the, the way those systems fail, what's so critical to observe, and I think as a CIO, you'd, you know, you'd really take away like, that's very different than my business, is not that somebody poked the wrong button and then all of a sudden things went kerplooey. It's that I had systematic analysis in place and remediation plans in place and failovers in place. So we were back in service in minutes, not months of forensic debugging of all the mayhem that sits inside of most of these companies. So on the, on the theme of getting started, um, for, for organizations, you know, those who have invested in cloud already have probably picked more than one. Uh, they also have a hodgepodge of internal systems, some of them bare metal, some of them virtualized, some of them containerized. Um, that's why everybody's so so excited about, you know, Google's announcement around Anthos and the mm. Anthos strategy. Mm-hmm. I know we're very bullish on it. Can't wait till Chicago. Yeah. It's only like three weeks away now, I think. Hoo-ah. Where we get to do a little show and tell yeah. um, of, the, of that. But, but why is Anthos so important to the enterprise mm-hmm. and um, why, do we, why do we feel like as an ecosystem, why are we so excited about that enabling the kind of things we're talking about on this podcast? Sure. You've, you've got um, cloud is still just somebody else's computer, right? And Google may have a fifth of the x86 processors that get manufactured on a yearly basis. But by Lord, it's not enough. I mean, they're not in enough places, and they're not in enough legal contexts, and they're not in enough environments to meet all of the needs for all of computing everywhere. You know, give them a decade, right? It's one of those groovy things where there's only 192 or 193 countries. Like, they got 20 in the last two or three years. Ah, they'll catch up. But in the meantime, there's all of this infrastructure all over the world, right? It's a sitting pile of something like three or four trillion dollars of gear that's still viable, that's in the middle of being depreciated, all the different data centers and facilities around the world. So if you already have gear that's in a place that is, that's not just, you know, heinously inefficient or, you know, already like immensely beyond end of life or unmaintainable, if you have gear that's still useful, you're back looking at this problem of how do I reduce the number of steps and the number of components that I'm responsible for managing? And worse, if I'm gonna manage some component, can I make it so I don't have to manage three different ones that do the same thing, right? So you've got a bunch of places that they've got 
In AWS, they run on Elastic Beanstalk, and they have a whole build pipeline for that, and they figured that all out. And on-prem, they've got OpenShift or you know, some other framework library, or they're running inside of VMware, or they're you know, bolted onto you know, DCOS and Mesos, and, and then in, in Google, they've been experimenting with GKE or other pieces, and like the complexity there is now massive, and the risk associated with the lack of skills, now you gotta have three times as many experts to be able to figure all this different stuff out. The debugging pathways are all totally different, so your forensics are gonna, you know, you need run books that are alternative for each, right? It's just bottomless. So as a, uh, as a decision maker in one of these businesses, if I can say, wait a minute, wait a minute, there's one stack and it runs the same on all of them and all those bits are open. I'm never going to get locked out of it. I don't have, you know, there's no, there's no component there that I don't have direct access to the actual source code that's being run. And, and it will make it so that I go to one pane of glass and I can see all of them. Like, forget it. There's a huge value prop on the other end of that. And it, I think at first blush and in the first motions of it will be the kind of thing that is immensely appealing to the biggest uh, biggest technology organizations, the folks that are running hundreds of developers, thousands of developers, where the costs associated with that multiplexing are huge. And you go, uh, I, will, you know, I will pay real dollars if I can figure out how to get out from underneath having to manage this heterogeneous substrate. But over time, uh, I think it's going to become really, really obvious that that layer is now dominant right kubernetes is a runaway freight train and i don't think there's anybody that that thinks that that's not on a path to be as ubiquitous as linux as ubiquitous as c as ubiquitous as x86 so okay if this is the next layer we're all going to say you know provides value continuous improvements are happening across dozens of different players and the major contributors in the ecosystem uh you know healthy production, high-scale implementations, I mean, running the biggest game in the history of games at Pokemon, running all manner of payment stuff on the PayPal site, like people all over the place implementing this across every different vertical. Okay, you know, how do I get to a place where I'm just able to implement the industry standard at the lowest risk? And, uh, you know, there is a reason that Kelsey wrote the paper that's called Kubernetes the hard way. It's not like the thing installs itself, right? right? It has a bunch of dependencies. It's a complex little monster. And, uh, and being able to go to, uh, you know, Google folks and SADA folks and say, can I please have me one? And we poke the button and the thing exists and it's compliant and it's going to you know for certain that the applications that run in one are going to run in the other. And that's just, that value prop is big. Seems like panacea. <laughs> well, and nothing's perfect, right? Like, this is early, early days. Can you, can you run Kubernetes in the middle of your mainframe? No, you can't. You can run COBOL in a container. So, go. okay, maybe I can run my mainframe in Kubernetes. But, uh, you know, there is, I think it's easy to look at these kinds of things as simple, you know, oh, awesome, now we'll have Kubernetes, and that will replace all my use of compute. In reality, the majority of cloud consumption has been in addition to existing physical right. infrastructure. Right. It's not a replacement. Migration of the legacy is slow and long and battle hard, but uh, 
as businesses try to innovate, they look at appending new technologies on top, right? Like we can all make fun of the finance industry and say, this thing where you had like the old slow once a day reconciliation of accounts and then you put this layer on top that let you do transactions in the middle of the day, uh, that's a crazy architecture. You should just change the bottom one and make it so it's stable. Yeah, it's crazy. But it did enable the entirety of mobile finance and every one of the innovations in banking in the last 15 years. So like, you know, I don't think you can get too pissed off at him for that. So My my beautiful Wells Fargo app. (laughs) It's so beautiful. But I know deep down inside, far beneath, is some mainframes. There's some nasty chunk of AS400 (laughs) that runs once a night that takes six hours to run. And by gum, it gets it right every single time. So I, I I don't think that this is about um, uh, some holistic, systematic digestion of corporate IT and its conversion into a mystical cloud-native thing. It's about a new capability that, that arrives at a lower complexity and a lower price point and a lower uh, aggregate risk that lets them start to take some experiments more rapidly. Yeah, and yeah, and as, it, as it becomes more capable and starts to displace existing systems and use cases, you know, all marvelous, spectacular, it sounds great. Look, I, I think in a, in a sort of um, containerized Kubernetes world, I think it does um, enable a faster migration to cloud, mm-hmm. certainly, a clearer path, but also... In your in your analogy and Vin, Vin Cerf's analogy around intercloud, yeah, like it also starts making sense of this multi-cloud world. Yep. Right. Yep. Which I think is challenging for all organizations. I mean, many we talk to, it just depends on how they operate. It's like they give they give the business whatever they want. They want this cloud. They can have that too. And you know, and and I think just managing that from an ops standpoint, Anthos brings in all this additional value of how to do that because mm-hmm. it, it is complicated. Yeah, it's... I, I think there are incredible things being built at each of the cloud providers because of the substrate of containers as a service, infrastructure as a service, database as a service, these basic building blocks that every application needs to consume. And if you look at most businesses, they're trying to weigh and balance the degree to which they plug into those higher level managed services or, or whether they run their own. I mean, I, I remember super early on, it was kind of a miraculous thing that you would build an application out of these, you know, it's not just the database and the front end. Like you might want, you know, a cache in there in the middle and, you know, you might, there's actually some of your stuff that doesn't need transactionality. And, you know, there's, there's actually some of this stuff you don't even need durability for. You're just trying to keep track of it for a couple of seconds. So the, the explosion of different structural components made it so that overall cost went down, but complexity went up. And, and then you're like, oh, it's going to be marvelous. We'll just do all these in virtual machines so that you lay all them out in VMs and, you know, the, the onset of a, of a standardized machine image. I mean, I remember the first time downloading a VMDK for a piece of software. I was like, oh, they have bundled this up in a way that is very, very portable and very powerful. And... Then you you know you go into the container marketplaces now and you can boot these things in 50 milliseconds. You're like, that's dramatically more portable, dramatically more powerful. Okay, and uh, you know the you know going from being able to describe what you want to deploy, but then still cut loose an engineering team to spend months deploying it 
to now, it's obvious that you know it's kind of a, almost a waste of time to explain the order of the architecture components in English. You should just probably spit that stuff out in Deployment Manager or Terraform or something, because nobody has time for any of the you know, analysis yeah. of the building. I just want to see the whole application work as a structured system, and and that that transition moving through to a place where I can experiment with multiple whole stacks for serving my application at the push of a button, automatically deployed, deployed in a compliant standard way, uh, making it so that it's something that um, you know other experts have weighed in and said, yeah, that's a reasonable approach to this stuff. That's a giant push down of value into the actual rank and file workers who are struggling with this stuff every day. I don't, I don't know any customer that says, hey, can you give me like ambiguous and wishy-washy guidance? Right. Just sort of give me a bunch of options, but don't don't tell me which one I should pick or right. or, or you know which dimensions I should use to figure it out. Like, They're like be prescriptive. Tell me what to do. Yeah, please just just make there be a button that does this, right? And and it's hard because you know on the one side we we really empathize with the developer who says that down in the weeds, but I mean I get exactly the same sentence from the CIO. Where's the innovation button at? I want that button, man. So it's. It's important to grok which things have been templatized already and which ones have not. So speaking of actually landing this uh, at customers to their benefit, not, yeah. not only initially but also long term. And you know, at SADA, I think our, our we're very sort of enablement focused in how we uh, deliver professional services. We're not we don't want to we don't want you to outsource your IT to us or outsource yeah. all of your DevOps to us. I, like a the not necessarily because we want to be in, but we think that's actually like risky long-term for these customers who yep. kind of outsource, quote-unquote, yep. outsource innovation or outsource core capabilities that should be a competitive advantage. Like, let us come in and enable you, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And um, I think, you know, Project Phoenix has sort of a view on talent and who you need and how to, how to manage and put people in the right functions. Um, also avoid like the one person that knows everything and oh, yeah. the only person that knows everything. So from a talent standpoint, how, how do you think in this era with cloud and public cloud and all these, uh, uh, the rapid innovation curve that we're on, like what, what is the talent strategy for our customers? And then obviously that correlates kind of to our own strategy as we're hiring mm. teams and, and building certain capabilities. So what, what guidance and advice would you have for the market in yeah. terms of how they think about talent? I mean, uh, you know, it's the perennial joke, but it's it's the most important one to tell. Uh, you know, I, I was just looking this morning, and a buddy was was commenting, you know, with in in full quotes like this job requisition that he had seen that said, you know, I need somebody with eight years of experience in serverless cloud tech. You know, like, I'm fairly certain that Lambda came out four and a half years ago, so that's totally impossible. Right, like even if you want to chalk it up, the joint was ahead of that, or however you want to sort of lay into who were the first movers in functions, um, that's not real. So there, you know, and I think, but I think it belies the need that companies have to de-risk their investments, both in technology and in people. So, uh, you know, if the only path to validating someone's expertise with a given technology is their prior experience with that technology, you're going to have some trouble. I I went to a liberal arts college. I'm a liberal arts kind of a person. 
So I think the most important skill for any uh, any technologist especially, but certainly anybody in business, is the ability to learn because it's not like the world isn't changing faster than we have any ability to keep track with. And so anything that's meaningful and disruptive inside of these businesses to be able to help them innovate is going to be brand new. And that uh, that's going to require people not who will follow the instruction manual, but who will write the instruction manual as they go. And uh, that that's a very different kind of a person, right? It's, um, you know, when you're thinking through the right skills, I mean, we, we ask all the time in interviews, you know, about area of technology that you're, you know, you know most about, or, you know, help me, you know, teach me a thing I don't know. And we're really hoping to get to a place where, uh, you know, where we're at the boundary of what, what your knowledge is. And at that point, I really want to know how you would learn more. What are the, yeah. what are the approaches? Where would you go? Who would teach you that stuff? How, well, you know, how would you experiment? How's your approach to that? Like those skills are the ones that are going to differentiate the people that are going to be, uh, you know, receptive to the next innovative building block that allows them to push their businesses forward. I think it's a misconception some of our clients have, and certainly the, the members of the IT organization and our clients have like, oh my God, they're going to bring in all new people. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. cloud, I'm going to lose my job oh, because I- of cloud. <laughs> It's so ridiculous, right? Like, like you, you walk into, you know, one of, the, one of these guys, it's like, hey, I have an idea. Like, you know, let's bring in somebody that doesn't know anything about your business context, has no idea about any of the technology components that you use, has no background in how they've been used in any of the products He's that great you great at Kate's. Right, right. Like, like but oh, they're, they're just wailing at Kate's, right? So that, you know, no business. It's a pretty sweeping statement, but I'll stick it out there. I would say, like, the largest impediment to most companies full stop is their access to technical talent like can they bring technologists to bear to reduce problems to something that's automatic reduce a problem to a solved state and if that technical talent is the hardest thing for you to get and one of the most precious assets that you have certainly data falls into that Certainly brand that falls into that and other ingredients. But if that technical talent is so critical, the idea that any single human that's any good at any of this stuff is even remotely disposable is nuts. That's right. Nuts. That's right. And the companies that I've seen be successful, like uh, I did a big project. We worked together with the folks at Airbus. Airbus had 180 full-time people working for a decade hand, hand tabulating the images that came off of the cameras that are on the bottom of their planes. Is this one snow or is this one clouds? <laughs> well, pretty sure that's snow. Pretty sure that one's clouds. 180 people yeah. for a decade, yeah. right? Like this is, that sounds to me like job security. And <laughs> those people, somebody got really good at it, right? I'm sure they had top 10 performers. Like somebody was the number one yeah. cloud versus snow categorizer yeah. in the world. And I'm sure if they look at their paycheck on a monthly basis, they're going, you know, if they figure out a robot how to do this, I'm screwed. Right. Well, the, we built a robot that figured out how to do it. Yeah. We, we used AutoML and Vision API to be able to automatically categorize at higher accuracy the difference between Computers can already see better than people. Oh, yeah. That's just a fact. That's just a given deal, That's right? Like, and, uh, and the rate of that is, is happening faster and faster across a broader and broader set of domains. And you would imagine that Airbus would go, oh, glorious, we no longer need these people, marvelous, and off right. they go. 
they are not stupid. Yes. Absolutely not. They have a trained team that is immensely high accuracy at evaluating these categories of value. So they started to look at all the other places in the Airbus data set where they didn't have the sample data labeled in the way that they would need yep. to be able to build the models that would let them in. Someone's got to train the model. Someone's got to train the model. And, you know, someone's got to tune the model after yep. that. And somebody's got to combine the models into combinatorial analytics. Somebody's got to be able to apply those to broader business spaces. As you up-level your tech, you have the opportunity to up-level your people. If you only do one and not the other, you are screwing up. Yeah. Right? Like in, in, in the same situation, totally. imagine what a total waste it is to send a bunch of your engineers to get trained up on whatever, serverless or you know, write a bunch of hot analytics in R or whatever it is, and then send them home to work on the mainframe yeah. and never give them access to the stuff you taught. Yeah. Like that's just crazy. What an obvious waste. It's the same thing I'm, I'm, I'm to waste always, the resource of those technologies. I'm so impressed with people's ability have to have the right mindset and philosophy. Just learn new things. That's right. Like one of our engineers got, you know, uh, I think the cloud architects certification. So now like they're an architect in all three clouds. Like, yeah. Jesus, Chris, like <laughs> <laughs> way to like, you know, throw the, throw the gauntlet down. But, yeah. um, but I think that the key is, you know, it, I think it's technical leadership, but it's also business leadership that has to value that and recognize that yep. and create a culture where there's continuous progress and learning. And then, of course, practical applications of what people have learned and have these programs to develop talent at different levels and then create a, an environment that actually new engineers want to come and work That's right. at from the outside as That's well right. because you have an engineering culture. Well, if you think... The only part of businesses that are changing is the connection to their customers and how they do internally, like as if the employees aren't getting more sophisticated too, Definitely. right? Like you have more information today about comp bands between different companies, about the level of training that they offer, how much they invest in their people, what are the benefits packages. People are A-B testing right. that data too. Yep. And if you can't show that your business is one that invests in its technologists, invests in innovation, shows a path for growth for people. I'm sorry, who wants to work at a spot that's no. stagnant, right? It's just not going to fly. For me, like I said, I'm passionate about experiences. Employee experience, people experience is actually comes ahead of customer experience. That's right. Because unless you have a fantastic people experience at your mm -hmm. company, you cannot provide an exceptional customer experience. It just yep. doesn't translate. It's impossible to do that. So... That's key. And of course, I think um, getting, you know, getting some of this adopted in, in your otherwise maybe, you know, older environment in which your serverless trained engineers come and actually have nothing to work on. Mm -hmm. You know, I think getting started with some aspects of cloud, injecting that in, in, the, in the appropriate fashion, I think is a great starting point for um, internally developing that culture regardless of yeah. how much you'll end up doing on your you know on your own versus having a partner do it i think um getting started is really important and it's something that people get excited about they get genuinely excited about yeah no i mean it's it's the same thing as you know i think over the last chunk of time it was pretty obvious if you wanted to hire you know young creative aggressive you know people that are interested in collaboration people that are excited about you know, working quickly and working in, in teams, 
they're going to want G Suite. They're going to want a collaboration suite sure. that reflects that, right? I'm going to tell you, if you call up and put up your job descriptions about the technologies that you're using and there isn't anything that's modern in there, like, I don't know who you're trying to say, come, you know, yeah. and, and it's one thing for you to say, I need you to have experience in this old tech because we're in the middle of change and this is an important piece of context for us. That's awesome. And I, I think what that does is makes your job description reflect the reality of the market where you have people with experience over the last decade of tech, two That's decades right. of tech, and, and to not value them for their, uh, for their expertise there, I think, is, is a loss on your part. But, um, but if you don't show in the, uh, you know, in the pathways that you're putting in front of potential employees and your current employees, the trajectory of growth that you're taking on as a business and where you, how you intend to work with them to pull their career along so that they can pull your business along mm -hmm. uh, is, is short-sighted. Miles, we have so much to do. Ah. So much, so much ahead of us. I know, I know. I gotta keep typing. I feel an obligation to the market, yeah, and to the people, yeah, that work there to to help you know set them up for success, so that you know the businesses continue to grow, the economy grows. Um, uh, I'm I'm an optimist. I think you have to oh, be yeah. to run to run a business. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> or to be any leader in a business, you kind of have to have to be an eternal optimist. And it's just after after ten years, to your point uh, earlier in, in another segment that we did. Um, after ten years, it's like we're seven percent of the way through. Right. I don't know. Right. <laughs> it's just so much right. to do. So much. But left. I'm excited. Um, thank you for doing this. I really oh, appreciate yeah. it. Um, First any, of many. Or so many. Any uh, any uh, words of wisdom? Uh, final parting words. I, I, I will completely plagiarize from uh, from Liz. Uh, she she and it, it kind of reflects this last subject we were talking about. She said that uh, uh, either you're making your customers happy or your people happy. It's not those two things, and you're wasting your time. Right. So I, I'm excited about being able to plug into both our customers and our employees and think through how we make them very, very happy. I love that. Yeah. Great way to end it. Yeah. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you for listening to Cloud and Clear. Check the show notes for links to this week's topics. And don't forget to connect with us on Twitter at Cloud and Clear and our website, Zada.com. Be sure to rate and review the show on your favorite podcast app. 